oil, coal, gasoline, natural gas, nothing quite as American as these four elements. Their powers combined, you have all the things that make America great. Chronic disease, rampant corporate greed, political corruption, and a healthy heaping bucket of environmental pollution. So it's no wonder that people oppose the implementation of green energy, much less try to understand it. You know, get that soy shit out of here. But, I mean, is that actually really the truth? Or is that the coal and oil companies shoving a serving of thick and sticky propaganda directly down your throat? Who opposes green energy? What is green energy? I mean, does it matter? All this on Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Waytat. Welcome to the episode before the 20th, and also the beginning of my environmentalist arc. So, get ready for that shit. You're either going to love me or hate me from it. Maybe. Maybe I'm about to dish up some of the coldest takes you've you've ever seen. Anyways, it means the world to have you listening. All one of you that keeps listening to all of these episodes. Uh, not sure if you're the same person that keeps trying over and over again, hoping the show will be better the next time you tune in, or are new people getting lured in by the promise of me sounding smart, but regardless, thank you so much for listening. Also, if you're the, uh, Ashburn listener that I think I lost on the minimum wage episode, or you don't want to hear my takes on white supremacy, please come back. I, I promise I won't do it again. Probably. Or, probably not. I mean, I'm not ready to compromise my morals, but you got me pretty close. Anyways, uh, make sure to send in your thoughts for episode 20, which is, you know, as I already said, coming up next. And holy fuck, I really started advertising that way too early. Uh, Also, make sure to share the show, download, like, comment, subscribe, all that shit. I'm practicing my YouTuber intro. Uh, Also, I have decided what we're doing after episode 20 in probably the research week for episode 21, so check out the podcast on YouTube for my very first video posted there. Is it going to be an episode? Fuck no. Fuck off. I don't have that kind of time. It's a different project I'll tell you about then, but also I think we're going to start uploading old episodes onto YouTube. Um, I'm not going to add a whole lot of uh, visuals to them because, oh man, as you can probably tell, uh, this is already... A huge amount of work for me to do every week. Um, so, it's going to be something a bit more easy for me. I'm probably just going to put the stock uh, logo image and post on YouTube just to try to get more traction. Uh, but anyways, on to the show. Okay, so we have a weighty, thick, 
and meaty episode topic introduction today. I said way too many words there. Uh, because we're talking about a ton of different types of energy and power generation. And these are going to fall into three types, being renewable, green, and conventional energy. However, before we do that, let's talk about how we actually make electricity in the first place. Because this is some really elementary shit we need to all understand. You know, can't have any of you sitting there thinking that there's some magic lightning spirits dancing through those tasty copper wires your mom told you to stop chewing on. So electricity is generated in the modern day primarily through this really neat interaction between copper and magnets. See, magnets have quote-unquote loose electrons, and these little harlots are the reason why magnets stick to iron. You know, because the electrons can't get enough of Big Daddy Iron's massive wallet, and the iron can't resist that electricity. And since copper is conductive, it takes these little sluts and passes them down the line like straight guys with $15 worth of alcohol pass femboys around. And this already passes the femboys they already had down the line. I.e. the electrons already in the copper. This also ionizes the copper, but because copper is conductive, it wants to reach equilibrium again, and so it'll pick up more loose electrons. And so how do we make this interaction happen? Well, in a few words... Magnico burr. Because if you spin a magnetic rod either around a coil of copper wire or inside of a coil of copper wire, it'll cause an interaction to happen. And in order to do that, we use a variety of methods. So let's go over those. Beginning with conventional energy generation, which are older and traditional forms of generating electricity all of which use non-renewable resources that, generally speaking, creates a lot of pollution. And all of these make the magnet go burr in the same method. Steam. See, by boiling water and forcing the steam through a pressurized pipe, you can spin a turbine connected to a magnet with a coil wrapped around it. Which, when you learn about how we make electricity, makes all this sound fucking stupid, I know. Because it's literally putting millions of dollars of engineering and thousands of hours of brain work, and then thousands more hours of actual work to find new ways to cause one of the basic motions of the universe. Spin. And the first method that we're going to talk about is coal power. Now, coal is an energy-dense sedimentary rock largely made from carbon that also burns very hot and very intensely. So what you do is basically put a bunch of coal in what is essentially a very big furnace, light on fire, and then boil water, which then spins a turbine, and yada yada yada. So, what's the pros and cons? Because, yeah, you know, I want to give every method of energy generation its fair shake. So, on the pros side, coal is exceptionally abundant and easy to find. And it's basically fucking everywhere. Also, it's super cheap because of the same reason. And on top of that, you can convert coal into other forms of fuel and carbon-based industrial compounds fairly easily, making it a really useful variety of things. And it's also really shelf-stable. I mean, if you leave it alone in a room without ventilation, it's not going to kill you by just walking in there, or it's going to try to escape. However, let's talk about the bad sides. So, first, and obviously, it's not renewable. Sure, we have a lot of coal in the world total, but the planet isn't making more anytime soon, especially while we aren't alive as a species. So it's limited. But also because it's literally just fucking carbon that you're setting on goddamn fire, it creates a ton of pollution. Because the soot 
and also the remains of the coal that has been altered molecularly to black carbon, which causes cancer, is also toxic as fuck, and it gets everywhere. You know, it's like sand, but it's much worse, because carbon can also absorb other compounds. Me, it can fuck up the micro and macro biomes of local ecosystems if it gets out. And it also creates carbon dioxide in the process of being burned, which is a greenhouse gas. Greenhouse gases are gases that trap heat, but allow things that cause heat, like sunlight, to travel through. Which, if you aren't a fucking dumbass, should sound like a problem when you think about how much coal humans burn in a single day. Now, also, coal mining is incredibly dangerous, deleterious to your health, and also destructive of the natural environment. Because carbon doesn't leave your lungs very easily, and soot, again, black carbon, is carcinogenic. That, that's a fancy word for cancer-causing. So in addition to being deep underground in the dark, in a place filled with soot and highly flammable dust fucking everywhere, it increases your cancer risk if it gets in your mucous membranes. You know, like, around your eyes, in your nose, in your mouth. In other holes. So one spark, earthquake, poorly placed blasting charge that causes an earthquake or a spark, poorly engineered support struts, or poorly scouted tunnels can rapidly turn a coal mine into a mass grave. And even if it doesn't, most of those workers are going to be fucked up for life in some way. Which, I feel like on a humanitarian level, ignoring the economic impact of a good percentage of an entire industry's workforce needing cancer treatments, is pretty fucked up. And because of, again, the soot and dust, and also the fact that coal mines take up a lot of space, it just entirely reams the natural environment. So, overall, good if you're a cheap, lazy, profit-motivated piece of shit that couldn't be fucked to care about the health or well-being of your workers or nature, or that of current and future generations. And, uh, suddenly you're starting to realize why coal mines are popular in the uh, good old US of A, right? So the next inventive way that we've found to heat up water is oil. Oil power works by burning oil, an an energy-dense goop of dead plants and animals, to boil water. And this works the same as coal power. You basically pump the oil directly into a fire, which then heats the water. And the pros and cons of this are probably also going to sound familiar. So, firstly, oil is exceptionally easy to extract and transport, since one of the first forms of motions human mastered... So, firstly, oil is exceptionally easy to extract and transport since one of the first forms of motions humans mastered was suck, and oil is a liquid. It's also very stable unless you light it on fire, and has extremely high energy. Now, also notably, oil is great for a ton of other industries, since crude oil can be turned into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, plastic, acrylic, polyester, spandex, and a ton of other things to use petroleum. So, more than our power generation... We really use oil for the petroleum to use in thousands of different compounds and products. However, on the other side, transporting, a, transporting and extracting oil, if it goes wrong, goes disastrously wrong. Why? Well, because oil, as you probably know from using oil-based lube to jerk off and not have sex, because let's be real here, is very difficult to remove from surfaces. Especially because water really doesn't do much to oil. And it's and it's toxic as fuck and sticky. So if it spills, it does massive harm to the environment, water supplies, animals, and people. And the cleanup is very difficult, time-consuming, and expensive, 
and very rarely do oil companies offer to clean up and will instead point the blame elsewhere and try to say it's not their job to clean. You know, it's like when you shit on the floor and decide that actually, it's maybe your mom's job to clean since she cares so fucking much about the shit stink. And on top of that, even when used how it's supposed to, oil massively contributes to the greenhouse effect since it produces CO2 and a lot of it. And also, petroleum is, again, toxic and doesn't break down very fast. Meaning that all those things you use it, meaning all those things you use it in, add massively to pollution as they just kind of sit there being toxic. Again, like you, bi- again, like you shitting on the floor. You're being toxic and you need to stop, but you won't. So again, easy to use, but also causes immense environmental damage and slowly poisons people while robbing current and future generations of the ability to live a healthy life. Again. Very American. Then we have natural gas, which is not farts, technically. See, natural gas is a combination of methane and other hydrocarbons combined with traces of things like nitrogen, the corrosive, hydrogen sulfide, and helium. And this is formed from the same process that creates oil and is basically the gases created from things rotting and becoming oil that we then collect and burn as fuel. Oh, we also use it to manufacture plastics and in organic chemistry. Okay, so the first benefit is that it's exceptionally abundant, because natural gas develops faster than oil. Now, it's also easily used in already constructed power plants, because most of the chambers used to produce heat are already fairly airtight, so you can pretty easily convert already constructed power plants to use it. It also, It's also really easy to transport, since, you know, it's air, very light, and in comparison to other forms of fossil fuels and non-renewable sources, it's also relatively low pollution. Fucking train. Speaking of pollution. (laughs) And then in my script it says, because, speaking of pollution, the only real major pollution it causes is greenhouse gases. Of course, burning gas, like fucking hydrogen sulfide, causes other problems, like acid rain, it's not as big of a risk as dumping 500 million barrels of oil into into the Pacific Ocean. Now, in addition to pollution, it also takes up a lot more space. Since it's less dense and also, you know, air, it's harder to put in compact storage. Meaning for the same amount of output as, say, oil, you need a much larger jar to hold it in. Which can be a problem when space comes at a premium, which it does. Now, it's also difficult to harness and use effectively. Why? Well, because natural gas is most effective when you use the entire combination of gases, including all those trace elements. And it's also not like harvesting coal or oil, since it's colorless, odorless, and, you know, air, so you can't exactly, like, put it in a cup. You need to have specialized devices to detect it and specialized storage devices to keep it from escaping. Also, because it's poisonous, and also not the kind of air we can breathe, If you walk into a cloud of it, at the very least, you're going to get fucked up and you might die. While for something like oil or coal, you could reasonably walk through it and not instantly fucking die. So, safer to use in a macro sense, but still extremely poisonous and also not really good for anyone. And the last conventional method we have is nuclear power. Nuclear power, unlike the other ones, doesn't burn something to make steam. Instead, you basically set up a quote-unquote controlled nuke to cause a nuclear fission reaction, 
or in other words, radioactive decay to produce heat, which you cool off using water, which the steam from is used to power a turbine. So the biggest benefit is the massive energy output with a whopping 14,000 megawatts per day, compared to coal at 1,600 per day. Now, the other benefit is that it is carbon-free, so CO2 isn't released into the atmosphere, making it more environmentally friendly. And it also doesn't use much land. I mean, think about it. If you don't care about the amount of radiation, you will be blasting your butthole, your dog's butthole, your neighbor's butthole, and Mother Earth's butthole. You can set this up with two rods of uranium, about 1,000 gallons of water, some heat-resistant metal pipes, and a turbine in your house right now, and power your entire house easily. I'll also give you cancer. So, you know, give and take. But for actual reactors, they're exceptionally safe and leak basically less radiation than you receive from a plane ride, assuming they're properly maintained and with proper training staff on hand. And if you're going, uh-oh, you also understand how humans work. Which is the first downside. Malfunctions, failures, and leaks can be catastrophically harmful since the average half-life, the time it takes for amount of radiation in the environment to be halved, for uranium used in reactors is a uh, 4.5 billion years. Now, usually radiation decays quicker than that because it's getting spread around, you know, which ups the passive radiation of the region for basically forever, which is not good. But it's not like it's not like if you go into a reactor that's been off for 30 years. Uh, and left to rot, that you're just going to instantly die because it hasn't reached anywhere close to its half-life. Now, the particles are spread around. It's just very radioactive. Uh, anyways, now, the other problem is that nuclear waste, since eventually, the since eventually the uranium isn't nearly reactive enough to produce the heat required, uh, gets dumped into lead-lined barrels and tossed into the river. Okay, I'm only kind of joking there. Basically, since we have to babysit the wa the waste for the next uh, four and a half fucking billion years, we need to store the waste somewhere we can contain the radiation that won't do too much damage. But we make a lot of it, and there's not a lot of places that fit the bill. So we're already, as of right now, running out of space. Now, it's also astronomically expensive, in part because uranium is very rare and hard to mine and purify, is therefore extremely expensive, but is also because the engineering requirements for building a new facility and the supplies needed to ensure you don't accidentally create a nuclear bomb or, or a device that, with industrial precision, gives every living creature within 100 miles cancer, also aren't cheap. So building new ones are a long and expensive process, and even once it's built and producing power, you need to pray to whatever version of Mormon Jesus you believe in that the operators are always at the top of their game also, the maintenance crews never once in their entire lives, for any reason whatsoever, went, eh, it's good enough. And even then, there's going to be trucks leaving every so often to go toss barrels into a hole in the ground in the Mojave Desert that is really motherfucking the local Native American reservation, and is also going to be the biggest from-the-grave middle finger to whatever aliens discovered humanity's rotting corpse in a few thousand years. So again... Not the best option, but certainly better than killing ourselves with toxic gas and oil spills, I guess. And with that, we move on to renewable energy sources. 
And these are energy sources that, when used, don't have a net depletion or a sustainable long-term. This also includes green energy, which we'll be talking about next, but renewable energy isn't but renewable energy that isn't green implies something kind of fucky about it. And both these options I'll be using as examples are both kind of fucky, but are also but also still use the whole Magnusco Burr method. So first is municipal waste storage. This is a form of power generation done by burning garbage which does sound gross, but actually makes sense. Because what we do with garbage now is put in a big hole in the ground to rot. But this method is done the same way as other forms of inventive ways we've decided to boil water. So the benefits are that, hey, we're making garbage anyways, so why waste the resources laying it rot in a big old hole in the ground that poisons the air and soil, and also gotta pay a dude to stand in a guard shack overseeing a square mile of rotting trash, when instead, we can burn in a massive fucking furnace to create energy and pay a dude to stand in a guard shack overseeing a quarter mile of furnace that smells like burning fucking garbage. And not only does this reduce landfill waste and emissions, but also saves us a lot of space. However, that's the only benefit. See, because the problem is, so you're now taking that rotting, stinky pile of banana peels, broken glass, old electronics, ripped jeans, used condoms, old food containers, and about 500 issues of inflation hentai manga, and now you're burning it. Which puts the stink in the air, as well as the pollutants. And also a whole lot of burning cum. Which means that you're basically making the local area not only smell bad, but also filled with poison. And also, burning creates a lot of greenhouse gases in general, and can leach toxic elements out of the garbage and into wherever you put the ashes. And also, I don't know if you've uh, noticed this, a lot of garbage is very fucking wet. If you put all that garbage in the same place, that wet fucking garbage jungle juice is going to get everywhere. So, again, bad idea. But the second, much better idea, is large-scale hydropower. This is where you essentially create a dam across a river and then flood some of the land on one side to create a reservoir. Then you poke a tiny hole in it and place a turbine in it to generate electricity from the motion of the water flowing over it. And you woke fucking environmentalists that are taken aback by me calling this the better option. That's how much I think the burning garbage is a bad idea. But before we catch the rest of you up to speed, let's talk about the, ben the benefits. See, firstly, it's incredibly renewable, because as long as that reservoir stays full, i.e. the river keeps flowing, it'll keep generating power. Added to that, it's really reliable and also safe to both operate and maintain, assuming you aren't incredibly dumb of ass. And of course, there aren't really any emissions in this process. So, what's the downside? Well, to uh, stroke off the environmentalists in the audience, which, by the way, some of you are very cute, so yes, please. Uh, constructing these dams aren't just expensive and long-term projects. They also do a lot of environmental harm. Because the areas you build these in usually support very massive forests or other forms of old-growth life, which you need to entirely clear out. But even when you build the dam, the reservoir usually ends up filled with newly dead or dying trees, as well as things like ghost towns, as you tell the residents to get the fuck out because those big city folk need a new hydroelectric dam to charge their dildos and gay agendas. 
But what this means, besides the dickheadedness of kicking people out of their homes to fucking flood them, is that all the stuff left behind and all the trees that are now underwater are going to start to decay. Which in turn pollutes the water. Which can cause a massive environmental damage and also spread diseases. In addition to that, given that the turbines are fucking metal and the structure is concrete, and they are both being partially submerged in extremely fast-moving water, some amount of the metal and concrete will leach into the water too, which adds pollutants. But on the efficiency side, large-scale hydroelectric get knocked out by a severe drought. Because of the water level of the, re- of the reservoir gets too low, it might not have the pressure to turn the turbine fast enough to generate the kind of power you need to get from it. Or it might stop working altogether, which is very bad, obviously. Added on to the cost of construction and the length of time you need to spend building it, hydroelectric dams are a huge investment. And finally, we actually don't have a lot of places to build these things. Why? Well, because first, we need a place that's geographically correct. We need a fairly steep downstream flow and a valley to contain the reservoir. Also, good geology. We need really sturdy rock foundations that's also pretty much entirely impermeable to water. Also needs to be a river without endangered species nearby or in a protected area and in a place we aren't currently using for commerce or transportation and also a place where a good amount of people don't live. Which, that combination is very rare worldwide and even more rare in the U.S., especially when you consider that we've become more aware of the environmental impact of hydroelectric in the form of blocking off fish migration routes and disrupting habitats. So this is a good way to generate electricity, but everything about its construction, combined with how picky the placement is, makes it almost impossible to build more of them, and the ones that we do have are getting overburdened because most of our power grid is shit. But with that, we're actually going to move on to green energy now. Green energy, in addition to being renewable, is also done with sustainability and cooperation with nature in mind. And a good place to start is small-scale, or by-the-river hydroelectric. And with this form, the same general principles apply, except instead of forcing water through the dam at high pressures, you instead build a water wheel or similar device into already rapidly running water to generate electricity. Now, in addition to mostly negating the environmental, economic, and social impact of large-scale dams, these types of hydroelectric are also much safer and cheaper to both build and operate. You know, given that it's not a massive engineering project that creates some of the largest man-made structures we've ever had the hubris to curse this planet with. It is otherwise... It otherwise has most of the same benefits. However, it does also have some of the same drawbacks. For example, the placement is still picky. Because not only do you need a place that won't be environmentally impacted too badly and with strong ground to support the structure, you also need to find a river moving at such high pressures to turn the turbine. Which, depending on the scale you're working with, might just straight up be impossible. Because unlike dams, the power output here is highly limited just by the laws of physics. Since the motion of the turbine is what causes the generation of electricity, you either want it moving fast or hard, and that's what she said. But if you have it moving fast, you need very rapid river water to keep smaller turbines spinning. And if you have them moving hard, then the turbines should be big to maintain their momentum. 
meaning the river needs to be coming in at very high pressures, a pressure that might not be possible. In addition, these stations are basically entirely deactivated by a drought. So if you live in California and your grid relies on these, come summertime, your entire fucking power grid turns off. And if you build these in places that have two seasons, everything is made of water, oh god, please help me, and there is no water within 150 fucking miles, oh god, please help me, it's even worse. Alright, now wind is actually the simplest method of all. Basically, if you make the blades of the turbines really, really long and then put them very high up in the air, then the wind will push them for you. And then, you know, that's just connected to the whole magnet and wire thing. On the positive side, this is an entirely renewable and clean form of electric energy. On top of that, it's really efficient to use. On top of that, it's a really efficient use of land since it's basically just a big pole. And you can really pack them in as long as the turbines don't hit each other. And its operating cost is low and it's fairly easy to build even though the construction cost isn't particularly cheap. What this means is that you can hire a fuck ton of people to build them and then you just need a couple of specialists to operate them. And it sounds pretty good, right? Well, there are some downsides. So, firstly, you can't really put these in highly populated areas. Because then not only do buildings block the turbines, but the turbines could get in the way. Not just of buildings, but airplanes. But, also, they cause a fuck ton of noise pollution because, surprise, surprise, massive fucking blades cutting through the air are pretty loud. It also causes visual pollution, which, in my humble opinion, uh, you can go fuck yourself. They don't look ugly at all. In fact, I think they look pretty fucking cool. Also, that should be the least of your concerns when the planet is fucking dying. The, let, me, let me just go off on this for a second. There are people that oppose the use of wind power, uh, not because of some of the, draw, the other drawbacks that we've talked about and are going to talk about, but because they look at them and they say, ooh, ugly, driving down my property value. Fuck you, you're not selling your house in this economy? What, are you fucking kidding me? You think you're... Oh, motherfuckers. Okay. Ugh. All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. The other thing is that environmentally, there is a pretty major problem with wind power. See, wind currents are used by a lot of animals. You know birds, bats, bugs, all that stuff. And so if the wind is going directly into a massive sky sword, guess what animals are going to go hurtling into it out of control? That's right, rare and endangered birds, bats, and bugs. Which isn't great, but you know, also at the same time, like, come on. I understand that is a downside. I understand that we need to protect animals. But holy fuck, <laughs> like... Jesus Christ, this is really splitting hairs at this point. Like, yes, I don't think we should build them directly in the migratory path of, like, extremely rare birds. But also if we're worried about, like, fucking seagulls, let's just not. Let's not. Let's just put it near the beach and accept that sometimes we need someone with a very large scrubber brush to uh, wipe the dead seagulls off the propeller. Um... And finally, efficiency. Because while they're cool, they also take quite a bit of air pressure to move a turbine. Sorry, I'm still laughing about the fucking seagull. Um, meaning, it basically always requires wind. Which, sure, if you put it somewhere with a ton of wind, is just fine. But then you put it somewhere like 
the Oregon Valley, where sure, it gets fucking windy around here. It doesn't often get windy enough to justify building a ton of uh, wind turbines. And now we're going to talk about solar. Well, half of solar. We're going to cover the next one next, but... Well, we're going to cover the other half next, but, yeah. See, you can use solar energy in two different ways. The first is pretty similar to what we've been talking about so far, that being solar thermal energy. Nowadays, this actually isn't used for generating... Nowadays, this actually isn't used for generating electricity all that much. Instead, we usually use it to heat water for industrial or residential purposes to save money on electricity or water heating units. Why? Well, because of the negative aspects of it. See, this method requires a ton of space to capture as much solar energy as possible, but it's also hard to set up because you basically need to mathematically calculate the exact angle of each panel and the angle of light you want to heat the water to exactly where you want it. Which, uh, which, uh, if you think you could do that math without some kind of very, very fancy specific degree, you're the kind of person to trust the fart. And because of that, it's also pretty expensive to install. And at the end of the day, this gets blocked if it gets cloudy. Because it's not activated, because it's not activated by UV light. It's activated by direct sunlight being turned into heat energy. So it needs access to very, very bright light. What's the benefit if you do install it? Well, it's really renewable. I mean, it's not like we're really ever going to run out of sunlight. And you can also really build it anywhere you have the room, since most environments humans live in have some amount of natural sunlight. And assuming you use the normal method of building these things with mirrors, you aren't paying much for maintenance and repair. And if a mirror breaks, it's like, what, 40 bucks at Walmart? Also, I'm kidding. I know these are like specialty, specialty mirrors, but bleh. you can build one on the roof right now to heat up water in a black plastic tub. Like, come on, man. Uh, the other one is photo. This is where that's going to come up a lot. I'm going to look up photo photovoltaic. I would not have gotten that one. The other one is photovoltaic. These are compounds that convert UV light directly to electricity, which is what solar panels are made out of. And the pros and cons of these are basically the same as the last one, except the panels are exceptionally expensive, so even the repairs aren't cheap. However, since it's just a compound reacting to the sun, there's not really a whole lot you got to do to maintain it. You know, no moving parts and all. But next we have geothermal, which is using heat from the core of the earth to rapidly heat water. So what you want to do is you want to shove a tank of water deep into earth's crusty and let the ambient heat boil the water and then the steam turns a turbine, which is the opposite of what most people think it is. See, most people think it means the heat of the surface, like the heat outside, which means a lot of people are like, oh, well, what if it's cold forehead? And don't consider that actually the Earth is incredibly warm, and this time it isn't just our fault. As long as you can get deep into the crust and almost touch the mantle, you can really build this anywhere. Speaking of which, let's talk about the pros. So, firstly, it's incredibly reliable and has unbelievable longevity. It's not weather-dependent, climate-dependent, and we're not really going to find a better way to do it, so it's not going to become obsolete anytime soon. 
Now, the other benefit is that it's really easily scalable and also space efficient. Because really, again, all you need is a temperature and pressure resistant vessel filled with water shoved as far back into the crusty as you can possibly reach. So you can engineer a geothermal plant to bury anything from your cum jar of water all the way to all the water Nestle has stolen from third world countries, depending on your need and your budget. Which brings us to the bad sides. So, firstly, is the high initial cost and picky placement. Because sure, you can technically build it anywhere, but our drilling technology is such a micropenis in a comparison to the crussy that it would make your average conservative talk show host feel good about their dick size. So, ex- so it's pretty expensive to dig deep enough to reach water boiling temperatures. Meaning we're kind of stuck putting these plants on things like fault lines, tectonic plate boundaries, and in volcanic hotspots because these places get the temperatures that we need. It's like if you have a, a micropene and you just rub it on the clit. Uh... <laughs> And the other downside is that this form of energy can cause earthquakes. How, you ask? Well, because where we need to build them are already pretty unstable. So, when you dig a massive fucking tunnel into it and then put a hollow tube in it, you you fuck with the density of the material and the surrounding area, making it more unstable, which can then cause earthquakes. Not as much as fracking, mind you, but these areas are already earthquake-prone, so... That's a little bit of a concern. Okay, so now on to biomass, which is the use of plant or animal products to produce energy-dense, highly flammable, and combustible fuels. And most commonly are plants like corn, palm, bamboo, hemp, or sugarcane, or things like pig fat as a replacement for things like ge- for diesel or gasoline. I almost said diesel. Uh, in combustion engines, or as an oil replacement in power plants. Oh, by the way, your diesel engine right now can run off of vegetable oil or grease, but it's really bad for your vehicle's long-term health, and you need a lot of it, because it leaves more residue than diesel and can clog up the works. It's also not quite as energy-dense as, like, normal oil or gas. Uh, But what that means is that sometimes you have to deconstruct the entire engine block fuel lines in the fuel tank and scrub the fuck out of it with a toothbrush. Uh, so not really worth it. Uh, but anyways, what's the benefits of biofuel? Well, firstly, it's really easily renewable and also really reliable. I mean, think, Mark. Think. You just have to literally grow more corn and squeeze them until the oil comes out. I mean, it also decreases agricultural waste and doesn't smell as bad as gasoline burning isn't nearly as toxic as that. And it's a bit more stable, so if you ram your pickup truck into a gas station because you were texting your wife while drunk driving and getting a handy from a prostitute you picked up while also snorting a line of coke off the steering wheel, the result probably won't be a fireball and 14 casualties. However, on the bad side, the cost of production is pretty high. Because sure, you're just squeezing the ore the oral. (laughs) You're just squeezing the oral out of corn. (laughs) Sorry, Freudian slip. Uh, Because sure, you're just squeezing the oil out of the corn, but you have to buy the corn, and also you have to pay Hans to squeeze it, and look, he's not a cheap hire, because not many people can squeeze corn into oil, and he knows that. And I mean, beyond that, the chemistry sets you need to buy to make the corn oil something you can use are going to cost you quite a bit. So, it's not cheap, but okay. However, the plants used also take up a ton of space. 
I mean, think. Corn, bamboo, hemp, and sugarcane are all crops that are thirstier than I am, just constantly, and also never really stop growing, and they take up a ton of space. Same with fucking palm trees. And this can cause a ton of environmental damage, because imagine if BP realizes this could replace gas, and they decide for once in their fucking lives to get ahead of the curve and modernize. Now you suddenly have BP slave plantations buying land masses the size of Rhode Island in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, clear-cutting it entirely, terraforming it, and then growing nothing but corn to turn into biomass goop. Which, you know, isn't really eco-friendly and also steals water. And also, they're probably going to kill people over it, because you sure as fuck know people are going to be pissed about that, and oh boy. Now, the other problem is that while it doesn't release a ton of pollutants, it still releases them. Especially CO2, because that shit's still carbon. So, this one is, you know, like a good option to eventually replace gasoline, assuming we don't all move to electric vehicles, but not really viable for large-scale electric generation, because at that point you're using more land to produce the fuel than what's actually useful for. Okay, and the last one that isn't theoretical, biogas, which is similar to natural gas, but is better for the environment. Why? Well, because these are, well, because these are the gases that happen when organic matter breaks down in absence of oxygen, which you then burn as natural gas. So the good side is that it's easily renewable because basically just need to let organisms do the one thing they're universally good at, rot. It's also a very low upfront investment, and it basically produces itself. I mean, you just have to collect the garbage. Because it also... And because of that, it also reduces waste going to landfills. And it doesn't contribute to greenhouse gases during its production, uh, because the process of creating and using it doesn't use oxygen. So you can't really create gases like CO2. However... On the bad side, any kind of impurities that slip in can easily cause pollution. If it slips containment, holy fuck is that not good for people or the environment. And it doesn't work without using a ton of raw materials, because you need a lot of rotting matter to create usable fuel. Unfortunately, it also isn't very cost effective, because sure, it's cheap to get, but the amount you need to start makes fuel but the amount you need to start making fuel is still pretty high. It's also highly temperature sensitive and highly sensitive to the state of the microbiome. I mean, it can't get too hot, too cold, change temperatures too quickly, or otherwise have any kind of major temperature variations. And these things in combination makes biogas essentially useless. Why? Well, because the best place to use it to get the most out of its benefits are highly agricultural places without a ton of money and a lot of organic waste including, like, developing nations. But the downside is that it's cost-ineffective, needs a lot of waste materials, and the places that benefit most from it have rapidly fluctuating temperatures. Again, like developing nations, and also mean just, like, the fucking south. So there's not really any benefit to using it. Also, the south is a developing nation. Uh, and we now get to the more experimental ones. And we're going to go through these quicker. So first is marine energy. Sorry, I let my... 
I let my uh, intrusive thought win on that one. I feel like that's, like, kind of offensive. Anyways. Uh, so first is marine energy, where you use the kinetic energy of waves and tidal currents to turn turbines or activate kinetic converters. And this has zero emissions, has a huge potential energy because of the massive amounts of kinetic energy in ocean water. And again, it's very reliable because it's not like the ocean's going to stop moving anytime soon. And if it does, you probably should start praying and uh, convert to uh, one of the Abrahamic religions. Uh, but on the bad side, even our small models are pretty expensive. And the large scale models we've made don't have the kinds of output we were expecting. And there's a good chance because of the biomes at breaker points of the ocean, that we're going to fuck up the environment. So we haven't proven it's effective yet, but if we do the thing to figure out, if we do the thing to figure it out, we might destroy some of the plants that rapidly disappear in coral reefs and waste a ton of money if it doesn't work. Next is algae fuel, which is the production of vats of algae that produce fuck tons of bio-oil. Which on the good side is greenhouse neutral, and you can make a ton of it with very little land, and it's most self-sufficient, and it's mostly a self-sufficient biome, assuming that it, you know, the inside of the vat is stable. But on the bad side, this is, again, pretty fucking expensive to build, and it takes a lot of water and nutrients, both things we already use way too much of in agricultural, in agriculture, due to wasteful agricultural practices which leads us to water vapor generators. Which is not a thing I knew you could do. But basically, when water droplets stick to things, they're using a very small electric charge to cling to the surface. So the idea is that if you take a conductive sheet of metal like copper, you can generate electricity using these static electric currents between the copper sheet and the water vapor. Now, while this is very cheap and provides passive electrical generation, it also requires a lot of humidity, and making water vapor intentionally isn't exactly sustainable because water vapor is actually a greenhouse gas, and the amount of power you'd be using is more than what you'd get from it. Uh, then there's artificial photosynthesis, where we use nanorobotics to combine solar energy, water, and CO2 to produce methanol to burn for fuel. Now this is very energy efficient, stable, and is questionably effective, but it is also very, very expensive. And our last one is infrared thermal energy, where you use passive heat to convert heat directly into electricity. So on the good side, you can use it anywhere, and it's very efficient, since everywhere on Earth has a passive amount of heat, and it also produces zero emissions. On the bad side, it's actually surprisingly expensive, especially when bought by an independent or individual buyer, like if you're putting it on your house or on your roof. And you also need to put it somewhere with unobstructed access to both the sun and the earth, basically meaning you'd have to put it out in the open and not block it in a way which is hella inconvenient. So, with all of that, uh, we're moving on to the history. Okay, so we once again start in ancient Egypt. Wait, don't turn off the show. This is quick. So, we have record of ancient Egyptians from 2750 BC, where Egyptians seemed to know that electricity was a thing. I mean, not something they could identify as a natural force, but they knew of electric fish and called them thunderers of the Nile and considered them to be protectors of other fish. Quick, right? 
All right, all right. Across the ancient world as well, people were noticing this weird shit that sometimes caused you pain, made noises and light, and seemed to be magnetic. In ancient Greece, Pliny the Elder and Scribonius Largus talked about the electric shocks from fish, electric rays, and sometimes from objects, assuming you rub them correctly. You know, like your clitoris. Now, Romans, now Roman and Chinese physicians, naturalists, and philosophers also knew something was happening, but they didn't know how to detect it or knew that these things were related. You know, like the light from static electricity, the shocking pain, or the fact that if you rubbed an amber rod on a cat's fur, what the fuck? How did they get to that conclusion? The rod could attract objects like a feather. And in 600 BC, Thales of Miletus made observations about static electricity, connecting the shocking sensation and the magnetic effects. However, he believed that was something with the amber, noting that it became magnetic after being rubbed, much like me. 400 years later, unrelated to the discovery of electricity, but is something that will be useful later, is that water wheels start to become common across Europe, being used to mill grain and pump water. But for the most part, this is where innovation stays for the next few hundred years. Uh, in 635 AD, windmills are invented in China and the Middle East, being used for the same purpose as water wheels, which also spreads pretty quickly to Europe which eventually develops into the windmill revolution of the 1590s, which actually isn't the term that's used and also isn't nearly as exciting as that sounds. See, in the Netherlands and eventually across Europe, the classic windmill we imagine nowadays is invented, which would serve as the basis for modern wind turbines. And getting back on track from that detour, in the year 1600, William Gilbert writes, De Magnet which was a study of magnetism and electricity where the term electricus, or like amber, is first coined, which is then turned into, which is then turned to electricity in 1646 in Thomas Brown's Pseudodoxia Epidemica, a book meant to address common misconceptions from his day. But for the next century, electricity is just kind of treated like this weird thing that happens sometimes, and we get to work finding ways to generate it to observe it under controlled circumstances. Which is something we discover in 1745, with the invention of the Linden Jar by Ewald, by Ewald George von Kleist and Peter von Muschenbrock of Leiden. Uh, no points for guessing where they're from. And this jar essentially stores high-voltage electrical charges over a long period of time using a conductor on the inside of the jar and a metal terminal through the top. And this allows us to experiment with electricity because we could generate it, put it into the jar, and then figure out what to do with it later. You know, much like a fart and or cum jar. Thirty years later, with our new understanding of electricity, Hugh Williamson and John Hunter independently report the electricity-producing organs in fish, proving that that's how they shock you. And in 1791, Luigi Galvani, who would be the inspiration behind the, world, the word galvanized, published his works on bioelectromagnetics. If you're nodding along, pretend to understand, that means that he discovered that muscles move using electricity. And in 1800, getting fucking tired of using mason jars to store his pocket electricity, 
Alessandro Volta invents a battery made of alternating layers of zinc and copper, which stores electricity very effectively for a long period of time that is also a lot more shelf-stable than a fucking glass jar, which gives scientists a much better source of electricity to experiment with. In 1819 and 1820, working together, Hans Christian Orsted and André-Marie Ampere developed the field of electromagnetism. And the reason I can pronounce those names is because Hans is where we get Orsted units from, and André is where we get amps. And the following year, Michael Faraday invents the electric motor, right in time for the Industrial Revolution to take off. And this is where we start to develop all of our neat little ways of polluting the planet. Uh, however, while that is happening, the field of electromagnetism continues to grow, with George Ohm, of Ohm's fame, mathematically discovering the concept of voltage and electric resistance, both extremely important in the generation and use of electricity. Now, getting further into the 19th century, we have a ton of things happening with the Industrial Revolution and the invention of essentially the modern world, with the field of electrical engineering coming about. And with the following contributors, most we're not going to be talking about, but most of them either ended up founding companies or really, really changing how the world works. So we have Alexander Graham Bell, Otto Blathe, Thomas Edison, Galileo Ferraris, Oliver Heaviside, Agnos Gedlick, oof, sorry about that, William Thompson, First Baron Kelvin, Charles Algernon Parsons, Werner von, si von Simmons, Joseph Swan, Reginald Fessenden, Nikola Tesla, and George Westinghouse, just to name a few. One of the ones not mentioned is actually the creator of the first solar energy system, Augustine Mukat. It's also not how his last name is pronounced, this is how I'm going to pronounce it, because fuck you and fuck me. Please. Uh, he built a sun meter, which essentially works like the solar thermal energy generator we talked about earlier. It was essentially a mirror that reflected heat into an enclosed cauldron of water that, when boiled, would produce steam usable to power steam engines. However, his contribution would be mostly forgotten in favor of other advances happening around the time. Uh, you know, like coal generators. Uh, and the following year, James Clerk Maxwell writes on physical lines of force, which links light, magnetism, and electricity together which is actually pretty accurate to how we understand electricity today. And William Grills Adamus, Adamus, Adamus uh, uses selenium to create power cells that convert solar energy directly into electricity. In 1897, Heinrich Hertz, where we get the unit of Hertz from, uh, that's also an aggressively German name, and by aggressive you know what I mean, uh, this... I'm not saying that he's a Nazi, I'm saying that sounds like a Nazi name, discovers that electrodes illuminated with ultraviolet light can create sparks, which would later be used in the development of solar panels alongside Adamus's advancements. Related to this, Einstein, 1905, publishes a paper on this effect, the photoelectric effect, where basically which basically is that some compounds, when exposed to light, take a look at their electrons and say, fuck you, and tosses them away. Other scientists identify and explain the flow of electricity, noting the difference between negatively charged electrons that we use for electricity and positively charged areas without electrons called holes 
that we later identify as protons. But here we're actually going to divert to the American timeline before we talk about a couple of things. So we start in 1752 when Ben Franklin crossed the ocean blue to France to have a whole lot of wild and unprotected sex with French prostitutes. Oh, sorry, wrong episode. In actuality, Benny Boy, not my president Franklin, was sending a key on a kite into a lightning storm. And why was that? That's right, everyone. Say it together. To invent electricity. At least that's what I was taught in American school. In truth, he was just proving that lightning was actually, electric, was actually electric. And this proved successful as he shocked the shit out of himself. But with that, America actually exited the race for a long time since, you know... War of Independence, War of 1812, Civil War, Manifest Destiny, and really ruining America for Native Americans, uh, also called Manifest Destiny. But we did come back in 1880 when Edison files the first patent for the light bulb, which will change our relationship with electricity forever as a species. And ever the capitalist, two years later in a massive display of his new superpowers, he installs electric lights and opens Pearl State... Pearl Street Station in New York City. And later that year, he founded General Electric. And even later in the same year, industrialist Henry Rogers uses the hydroelectric dam powering his factory to also light his home, being the first time hydroelectric was used residentially. And entering into the 1880s, we begin the... And entering into the late 1880s, we begin the War of the Currents. Which is, again, a lot less cool than it sounds. But basically, this is when Tesla moved to the U.S. and started selling his form of electricity, alternating current, to compete with Edison's direct current. Oh, and the difference, by the way, is that direct current is a constant flow from the source, while alternating current bounces back and forth. DC is more consistent, but it doesn't convert well, while AC is less stable, but converts really easily. But Edison, being the true capitalist he was, doesn't want to lose his royalties. So begins a discrediting campaign by electrocuting animals to death in front of crowds. Yep, and that wasn't the only thing that made him a cockbag, but it is neither here or there how much of a cockbag he was. However, he eventually lost in 1896, when Buffalo, New York, becomes an electrically lit city from the Niagara Power Station using alternating current. And Edison's own company also started using AC over DC, since it was a lot more useful. And also, to today, we still mostly use AC currents. Um, the only exceptions are things like computers and LED lights, because that works better with direct current. Um, also, a lot of things that like plug into walls, that uses direct current, because, you know... Uh, but yeah, like for the most part, we use alternating current. And jumping forward to 1935, we have the construction of the Hoover Dam, which is one of the biggest dams ever built and is still an engineering marvel. And the next year, FDR signs the Rural Electrification Act, which was to spread industrialization and electricity from urban areas to rural areas. And this means that government workers would go to rural homesteads and install distribution networks. Which, holy shit, if that's not the worst fucking job I've ever heard, that's fucking terrifying. There were people who, like, when the government went to set up water on their land in the 1930s, or, like, deliver mail 
in the 1930s, there would be people standing on their fucking porch pointing a gun at them being like, you get the fuck out of my property. Uh, but this eventually created the National Electric Grid, being divided between West, East, and Texas. Because of fucking course, Texas would do something like this. And then, in 1958, after Eisenhower motherfucked two Japanese cities, he turned around and says, Oh, oh, fuck. Uh, this is not okay for humans to be able to do to each other. We need to find peaceful ways to use nuclear energy. Which, let me tell you, when a fucking general of the United States goddamn army turned president of the goddamn United States of America says something like that, you should also be terrified. Do you know, Americans, we have no self-control. If an American says that, and an American military man says that about weapon of destruction, holy shit, that's scary. But, I mean, seeing that, and fucking believing him, uh, in the U.S., we open our first nuclear power plant in the same year in Shippingport, Pennsylvania which was really rapidly followed by dozens more across the U.S. Also, I should clarify, he did not in 1958 say that. Like, basically, as soon as the bombs dropped, he was like, oh, fuck, uh, let's never do this again. Like, almost immediately. So. Uh, but we kept building nuclear power plants until 1979, when the... Th- when the Three Mile Island disaster occurs. Basically what happened is that coolant water was escaping containment, and the alarm sounds were really similar to a lot of other alarm sounds, and the operators didn't know what the fuck was going on or what to do because they weren't trained on how to deal with that highly... because they weren't trained on how to deal with that highly specific, highly likely accident. And because they didn't or couldn't do anything about it, the facility overheated and vented a ton of radioactive gas and iodine particles into the surrounding air, water, and soil. And really f- just motherfucked the entire place for a long time. Oh, and then only seven years later, Chernobyl happened for similar reasons. Design flaws, human error, and a lack of communication about the severity of the meltdown. And these two things combined inspired massive worldwide pushback against not just nuclear energy, which is otherwise completely safe if you don't hire dummies, but also against green energy in general, since at the time we still considered nuclear energy to be clean, which which this sentiment resurged after Fukushima in 2011. And this pushback didn't start to let up until 1996, with the development of the Solar Project, an attempt to create a better way to store solar energy, long-term by constructing three experimental power plants in the southwest. And it mostly actually worked. Uh, But finally for this timeline, we have natural gas overtaking coal as the most common source of electrical power by 2015, which is kind of a good thing. Uh, At least shows that we are headed in the right direction. It just took us like a hundred fucking years. But Let's talk about right now. All right. So, before we get into some of the issues going on, let's go over the stats. The uh, STEM lords have been it have been edging for way too long. So, first, let's look at worldwide. First of all, what do we 
So, first of all, what do we use the most of? Well, 36.7% of all worldwide power generation is from coal, 23.5% from natural gas, 15.8% from hydropower, 10.4% from nuclear, 53 from wind, 3.1% from oil, 2.7% from solar, and 25 is from every other source we've talked about combined. Which is actually surprisingly helpful. I mean, yes, 63.3% of all power worldwide is from fossil fuels, and 73.7% is non-renewable, but just over a quarter is renewable. So, I mean, glass half full, even though it's kind of too late. But also, we should look at safety and CO2 emissions. Uh, for safety, the scale we're looking at is deaths per year per terawatt per 150,000 people. Which... I know it really sounds like we're splitting hairs and getting, like, way too specific, but there is not really a more concise way to measure this. So in order from least to most dangerous, we have solar with 0.02 deaths per year, nuclear with 0.03, wind with 0.04, hydropower with 1.3, natural gas with 2.8, biomass with 4.6, I don't fucking know how that happened, oil with 18.4, and coal with a motherfucking 24.6. Now keep in mind, this is in a... Now keep in mind that in a single year, one coal power plant produces about half a terawatt hour. Now you can see why that whole unit's coming back into place, huh? Alright, let's also look at worldwide emissions per 150 people in the EU. Why specifically the EU? I don't fucking know. That's just the measurement the stats used. So from most to least polluting, we have coal at 820 tons per year of CO2, oil at 720 tons per year, uh, natural gas at 490 tons per year, biomass at anywhere between 78 and 230 tons per year, which is a huge fucking range. I don't understand why they haven't nailed that down. Hydropower at 34 tons per year. Fucking how? Solar at 5 tons per year, wind at 4 tons per year, and nuclear at 3 tons per year. And to note, this is also taking into account the production to build these kinds of power plants. So, overall, the most used, most deadly, most polluting energy source is coal. Which I don't think is surprising, since, again, you know, a coal mine is kind of the place a lot of people imagine being the closest experience to hell. You know, no god in the mines and all. And now for the U.S. So, by share of electrical generation, uh, f first we have natural gas at 39.8% of all electricity produced in the U.S. Coal at 19.5%. Nuclear at 18.2%. Wind at 10.2%. Hydropower at 6.2%. Uh, photovoltaic at 3.4%. Biomass at 0.9%. Oil at 0.6%. Geothermal at 0.4, other gases uh, besides natural gas at 0.3, and solar thermal at 0.1. So in the U.S., we have 60.2% of our power generation from fossil fuels and 78.4% from non-renewable sources. And while I could not find anything tracking safety in the U.S. for some fucking reason, we do track emissions, which is tracked by total emissions per year. So every year we produce 1,724 tons of oil emissions, 1,648 tons of natural gas emissions, 
866 tons of coal emissions and 19 tons of every other form of emissions. And this is, again, tracking production, burning, and also using them for other things. Which is, of course, why oil is on top despite not being used very often for power anymore. So, now that we've covered the stats and gotten the stat nerds to come, let's now cover the issues. Because this is probably the thing you're expecting from this episode, since, you know, the entire fucking planet is dying, it's our fault. We have the answer and we are using it. So, let's start with some of, like, the real, like, technological roadblocks stopping renewable energy from being the norm. The first is energy storage capacity. So, now... So right now, we basically use a large batteries to store the energy generated from renewable resources, which most of them turn off during certain times or circumstances. And wind turns off when it's not windy enough, solar turns off when it's not receiving enough sunlight and it's not sunny enough, and hydropower turns off when there's not watery enough, or when there's a drought. So to use them effectively, we need to put the electricity into a battery so we can use them more consistently and not have like off hours. And the problem is that batteries always discharge some amount of energy, so we aren't able to get a perfect transfer of energy, and we always waste some. Also, batteries are very expensive and cause a lot of pollution and environmental damage in the construction of them and mining operations. Especially when they go bad, and now we have a big useless lump of toxic rare earth metals we can't get rid of. The second is the land use aspect. Because a lot of these methods take a fuck ton of land, especially the most reliable at the scales we need to replace our current grid structure. And that would be if we use land well in the first place anyways, which we don't, by the way. I think about it. In America, we have yards of grass instead of gardens because having useless land meant to just look neat is an Americanism from a time where that meant you were rich. How we zone things also wastes a good amount of space, and holy fuck if the government doesn't have wasteful practices. So we can't even use our land well. But, you know, those aren't the only roadblocks. A lot of how our system is built also stands in the way. Like the cost. See, renewable energy, while it does generate quite a few jobs and money if we let it, does have a pretty high cost of entry, and it's not really affordable without government subsidies and big business taking an interest in turning green which is an expense neither wants to pay for, and neither look at it as a requirement, and looks at it more like a high-risk investment, because we live in a, ha in a capitalist hellscape, and it's our fault for not starting the revolution. But even if they did want to pay for it, getting these massive and cumbersome, morbidly obese systems into alignment would take far longer than it should, and is going to be filled with constant, incessant bitching and whining that they actually like it better when they're slowly killing themselves. You know, like when you're trying to get your friend to stop smoking or trying to tell them to stop fucking their abusive girlfriend. And our infrastructure in general also stands in the way of progress here. Because most of the infrastructure in America and Western Europe is horrifically underfunded and poorly maintained. Which makes the entire fucking thing unstable. Basically, our entire electrical system of... Our entire system of American infrastructure has a one rapidly left to rot Vandy project after another Mickey Mouse together to vaguely resemble a functioning society. So implementing renewable energy would be a massive undertaking, and we'd basically need to rebuild our entire system. Not just power grid, but basically all of our infrastructure. And 
the other thing is that our current power grid can barely handle our current power generation. Meaning that we're consistently experiencing brownouts, shortages, and weather-based outages. And if we transfer over to a system using renewables, then we gotta deal with a system that requires massive battery storage, sometimes, and sometimes produces more energy than we know what to do with. And finally for this category is the technical challenges. Because a ton of our industries are built on the backs of fossil fuels and unsustainable resources, that the amount that we'd have to change is absolutely astronomical. I mean, like I said, we'd have to change our entire infrastructure. We'd also have to reformat everything to run on green power. Which, sure, for cars and things you can plug in doesn't sound too bad, but then you think about industrial boilers, vehicles, and centralized heating and electrical systems, and now you have an entire dick, balls, and ass problem. And finally, we have the cultural and political issues. So, firstly, the big thing staying in the way is politics. Because with a combination of anti-science and anti-globalist platforms and a lot of political posturing, politicians have brain-broken all of us to innately distrust anything foreign and anything a scientist say because they're gay leftists trying to groom your children, make them communists, and turn your grandchildren brown. But also, it's lobbying from the, from the energy industry. Because the people with an energy monopoly are fossil fuels industries. And because they don't want to transition to green, and also don't want to surrender their monopoly in any way, have decided the best thing for them to do is to kill all of us while paying off politicians to spout bullshit. So, you know, we can't make any forward progress anyways. And, and also is a public perception of green energy. Because we aren't willing to pay an increased cost for green power, and our reliance on things like gasoline and plastic means that public perception is fairly negative, and really always has been. Especially with suburbanites founding things like NIMBY, or Not In My Backyard, because renewables look fucking ugly, which, hey guys, at this fucking point, suck it up and shut the fuck up. This is even before we consider people building their personality around, like, rolling coal out of the McDonald's drive-thru, or people whose primary hobby is littering. I mean, just look at the reaction to people to things like paper straws. Now imagine that they're beloved, tasty, carcinogenic oil and coal that they have literally zero investment in is getting taken away. But finally, is that people don't know anything about renewable energy, and so they're very skeptical of their effectiveness, and because they're used to energy being harmful, they assume that every form of power is going to give them cancer or something. I mean, look at, like, 5G Wi-Fi. That's not even, like, a form of electricity. That's just fifth-generation Wi-Fi speeds. But let's go over and talk about the solutions. Okay, so we only really have four solutions. First is to advance our storage systems. Basically, we want to ensure that we can use renewable energy long term. The number one thing that we need is more efficient energy storage. And we have some ideas like hydrogen batteries, which is uh, a bit dangerous. But, you know, unlike a lot of other people, I trust engineers. Um, but also, you know, we could continue to improve lithium batteries. Second is uh, to implement a smart grid system. Basically, by implementing optimizing real-time monitoring systems, control boards, and integration systems for the grid, and seamless system integration, we can maximize the efficiency of green energy. There's a bunch of techno babble to say, like, hey, shit's fucked. Uh, maybe we should fix that. 
Third is that we need a more flexible grid. We combine different forms of energy working in tandem to account for fluctuations and supply in real time and can aggregate these resources easier, then our grid becomes a lot more stable and a lot more efficient. And, you know, we already know how to do shit like that. And obviously, we should also keep researching to improve all renewable sources. And this is my own personal solution, but I think we should also, uh, I think we should also do not U.S. government-friendly things to oil executives. Just a thought. We start with one of them. And we see where that takes us. How we feel about it on the inside. And how they feel about it on the outside. Okay. <laughs> so let's let's go to the opinions that aren't fucking insane. Uh, first of all, uh, is the question of if we can phase out fossil fuels. And 31% of people think that we should start doing it right now. Uh, 32% say that we should eventually do it. And 35% say that we should never stop using fossil fuels in general. And 35% of people are fucking stupid. Uh, but importantly, 68% of people think that we should use a mix of fossil fuels and renewables. Which is like the reasonable middle road approach on something that is uh, not reasonable. Uh, now... Do people think that this will cause unexpected issues? 34% of people say that yes, it will. 38% may it might or probably will. And 27% say it absolutely won't. Of course, if you put politics in the mix, 57% uh, of conservatives think that there's going to be issues, and 40% of leftists think that there absolutely won't be. Um, and 43% of people think it will be easier to produce our own energy. 40% think it will be harder and 15% think that it really wouldn't change much at all. And why do I bring up this set of opinions? Because this goes to show that the majority of people want to have renewable energy in some way. And sure, the distribution is fairly slim, but still a majority. I mean, unless you do some math and discover that 63% of people believe in using renewables, 65% don't think it's guaranteed to cause issues, and 58% of people don't consider renewables as detrimental to our energy capacity. So, politics, once again, is the main problem. Also, kind of a weirdly divided statistics to make it seem more contentious than it actually is. Here's the thing, I usually like Pew Research, but it's very easy to use their stuff to argue in bad faith. Um, so, let's also ask what our highest priority should be. So, the highest one is protecting the environment at 53%. The second is increasing our reliance on renewables at 52 Third is creating jobs at 49%, tied with lowering energy prices. And 48% of people want to focus on renewables to reduce foreign dependency. Which, that one's adding in a little bit of xenophobia, but I think this might be the one case where that's okay, because that also reduces our reliance on governments that are also fascists. So... Uh, and finally is the impacts, which is, this one's actually just straight up politics, because fuck me, why not? 
So first is the air and water quality, with 80% of leftists thinking it'll be better, while 48% of conservatives thinking there will be no effect at all. Jesus Christ. For creating jobs, 68% of lefties think renewable energy is better, and 70% of conservatives think there will be no effect at all. We also have frequency of extreme weather, with 53% of leftists thinking it'll decrease extreme weather, and 70% of and 70% of the right think it won't have any effect. Huh, this seems like a pattern, doesn't it? Alright, so energy prices. 53% of leftists in the room think it'll be better, and 65% of conservatives think the energy prices will get worse. Which a fucking course, now they have an actual opinion. Oh, which, to be fair, I, I think this is the only one so far that they actually have kind of a point on, because corporations aren't going to let go of their profit margins, so they're going to increase the prices. Which, I know isn't their point. Their point is that uh, it's more expensive, and so it'll, like, harm the economy. But I'm stealing their point to make my own point that corporations suck, and we should uh, do U.S. government not approve things to them. Alright, so, 46% of leftists think their system will become more reliable, and, sorry boys, but I gotta disagree, and the right believe it'll get worse, with 59% of their number saying that. Which... The reason I agree with them is also not where they're going. What they're saying is that renewable energy is bad. What I'm saying is that we suck. We suck at building things. We're terrible at it. And finally is the price of goods, with 40% of lefties saying there will be no effect, and 66% of conservatives think that prices on just goods in general will get worse. Which, there's no real way to predict that, and like, ah, oh, fuck me. All right, but now that you've heard from other people, let's hear it from me. And I say that as though anyone really wants to hear what I say and they don't just skip the end of this episode. All right, that little existential crisis aside, what do I think of renewable energy? And honestly, I'm actually really surprised by how simple a lot of this is. I always thought, and kind of assumed that these were, like, cutting-edge technologies that we still didn't understand fully and were super expensive. But in actuality, we've known most of these processes since the early to mid-1800s. And honestly, that pisses me off. Why? Well, because the monopolies of oil, gas, and coal companies, who systemically and oftentimes intentionally harm their workers, customers, and passerby, have done everything they can to stand in the way of progress and developing our technological and cultural capacity to use green energy. And why? For profit. A profit, thanks to modern technology, and green energy they can use to escape this planet on a fucking $20 billion rocket ship while we all sit down here and die in the mess that they made. Because the reason the planet's polluted and overheating and full of garbage isn't because of you and me. That's a lie. Compared to us, these companies are grand masters of pollution. Conventional sources will not only eventually run dry, but are also killing the planet, and these motherfuckers know that. They aren't dumb. They know that they're the number one polluters, which is why they lie to you and tell you that you're the problem and you need to drive electric vehicles, use paper straws, and drive less to save the world. And hey, yeah, do those things because we also need to change our habits, and, you know, living sustainably isn't a bad thing. But these motherfuckers are the main problem. And what will they do when their resources dry up? Doesn't matter to them. They'll be long dead. 
but we won't be. Neither will our kids or our grandkids. Renewable energy isn't a choice anymore, it's a requirement. It has been for decades. But it's too late. We passed the point of no return on Earth's greenhouse gas balance a few years ago. Blew right past it, actually. Wasn't even close. The end of humanity has already been set. Anthropogenic climate change is going to be the end of human life. The only thing we can do now is try to stall it until we get our heads out of our asses long enough to maybe, maybe have a chance to clean the atmosphere and water and soil before it's too late, and even then, 90% of humanity will die. But we probably won't. Because again, we've needed a change since the 19-fucking-80s, and here we are still, with the same problems, the same debates, the same technology. So, you know, while I'd like to give you something hopeful, like, oh, install solar panels and build your own green property there isn't really much of a point anymore and like go ahead do it that's fine i guess i just like don't be an asshole and contribute more to pollution Let, let's end the episode and uh fuck me that's a depressing backyard ending anyways we have opinions advice on how to make the show better who renewables I missed, why you think that actually humanity isn't doomed and oil CEOs will save us all and other cuckoldry, and really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytappods at gmail.com. That's W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytad Nerd, where I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc., where I hope you'll like the topics just as much. And also remember to follow me on Twitter at waytat underscore pods for more episode announcements. Alright, have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun. And remember, get that good electricity. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This, and I've been your host, William. Good night.